0: Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Olivia and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. We are getting close to the end of another semester of teaching and I've also had a primary job change that I'll have to move for once the semester ends, so in about a month or so we'll be taking another season break for a couple of weeks. While I finish up the end of semester grading and moving and all that good stuff, we'll still have uh, one more episode after this one before that happens. So, giving you a bit of a heads up so you know it's coming. And one of the great things is that once I am at the new job, I won't have to work and I won't have to work two jobs anymore. So, I'll actually have like time for podcasty related things. And there's some general updates i want to do and maybe actually make a website question mark uh it'll be great so yeah one more episode then we'll be on break and i'll think of a good one to go out with uh there's a chance it might just be earth day part two but i will we'll see how it goes and now for this episode. So Earth Day is coming up next weekend. So I wanted to do something kind of Earth Day themed. Originally, I was thinking into going and in, I was originally I was thinking of going into the North Atlantic right whales or passenger pigeons, but uh, one, both of those are going to be kind of bummer episodes. And I also wanted to wait on those to make sure I had the time to do like inadequate amount of research for both of them. So instead we're going to do something a little different this week and we're not going to have a direct animal theme. So this week we're going to dive into the history of Earth Day and how it all got started. Uh, lately, Earth Day is kind of thought of as a day to like just go outside or do a tree planting or something. And both of those things are super great. Definitely do those things if that's how you, uh, to celebrate Earth Day. But I think a lot of people don't... Uh, realize or don't know that the first Earth Day was really the beginning of the current environmentalist movement and was a big push for literally all of the major environmental legislations that exist. So uh, Britannica Encyclopedia says it's an annual celebration that honors the achievements of the environmental movement and raises awareness of the importance of long-term ecological sustainability. So to help, just, you know, raise some awareness of what Earth Day was is about, because I feel like a lot of people really don't know. Uh, today we're going to be a little bit more political, environmental policy focused than usual and just general environmentally than animally focused, but it's important to talk about and be aware of, so let's get into it. And this is likely going to be a longer episode. There's a chance I'll break it up into a part two, but we'll just see how it goes. Okay, so Earth Day happened in 1970, or the first Earth Day happened in 1970, but first, in order to kind of set the scene, we need to go back to the 1960s. Uh, At this point, after over a century of industrialization, environmentally, America was, to paraphrase, a gross mess. Two events in particular are considered the trigger for Earth Day, One was the burning of the Cuyahoga River in Ohio in 1969, and Rachel Carson publishing her book Silent Spring in 1962, but there were quite a few uh, disasters and just general environmental events in the 60s. So, starting with water pollution, many of them were heavily polluted, especially rivers in major industrial cities like Buffalo, Baltimore, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and then, of course, the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio. The Great Lakes were also in pretty bad shape. Scientists had declared at one point that Lake Erie was dying because essentially it was becoming one big dead zone. So the pollution and just raw sewage that was being put into the rivers and the lakes was adding enough nutrients for bacteria and algal overgrowth, which... You know, algal growth can sound great on paper, we like plants, they produce oxygen, but when the nutrients run out from the rapid growth, everything dies and then as things decompose, all of the oxygen gets used up in the water, and then what's called a dead zone is created. Dead Dead zones are called that because there's not enough oxygen in the water, so fish or anything that swims in just dies. And these days, like, dead zones are still a thing. Uh, So, these days, there's a pretty permanent dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico at the mouth of the Mississippi River. It varies in size from year to year, but it is still there because of, I think, largely agricultural runoff. But uh, back to the 1960s, the Cuyahoga is especially famous for setting on fire, though. It wasn't the only river to set on fire, but this is kind of the one that we know about as the river that set on fire. The 1969 fire is the one that ended up really just getting into the public eye, and in part this was due to some timing with an economic downturn in the area. Essentially, it sounds like uh, people ended up getting laid off, and in that moment of things going downhill, they were like, hey, wait a second, this place is a huge mess, and we can't really justify it anymore with this really awesome uh, economic success we've been having. So maybe we should do something about it? A lot of things were being dumped in the water, anything from industrial waste to just raw sewage. And with the Cuyahoga, the sewage was being dumped into the river long enough that eventually it started to threaten the city's water supply. In the early 1920s, I think it was about 1922, uh, people in Cleveland were like, oh hey, this water tastes like acid. So, the city tested it, and sure enough, the Cuyahoga River water had gotten into the water processing facility intake area, and that's what caused the acid taste. Wonderful. And then, there were the fires. Yes, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Not once, but it's possible it's set on fire at least a dozen times. And, uh hold on, I have to find, I have to grab that article from the Smithsonian again because the title is actually pretty gold. So, the article in the Smithsonian, uh, the headline was, or the article title, the headline was, the Cuyahoga River caught fire at least a dozen times, but no one cared until 1969. Great. So, uh, and then when you also start to search for how many times the Cuyahoga set on fire, that is Googled just enough that how many times did the Cuyahoga River burn? Autofills as you type. So the fires we know about happened in 1869, 1883, 1887, 1912, 1936, 1941, 1948, 52, and then, of course, the 1969 incident. River fires happened frequently enough, though, that there are some that may not have been reported. The press didn't always really report them, and even the fire in 1969 was small and short enough that no one got a picture of it, but some of the earlier fires were a pretty big deal. The 1952 fire was a larger one, and uh, some deaths did happen as a result, and some of these bigger fires caused millions of dollars of damage to bridges over the river and uh, some buildings that are right next to the river. And that's millions of dollars in 1950s money, so that's really a pretty big deal. Now, of course, you're probably thinking rivers are water. How do they set on fire? Well, they're just that polluted, and they had oil slicks from all of the industrial waste just hanging out on top of the river. And um, so it's really the oil slicks and some of that assorted pollution that burned. And there was enough of it that in order to prevent river fires a lot of the major industrial cities had oil dispersion tactics in order to prevent them from setting on fire. Because why clean it up when you can just disperse it? And of course, there were some cleanup efforts that were initiated in 1969 after that fire. The Cleveland mayor, Carl Stokes, was the first African-American mayor that was elected to a major city in America. He did push for more regulations from Congress and Uh, He was able to approve some projects to start cleaning up the river, Um, but of course that's a pretty big task. And also as a fun fact that I don't think I mentioned later, in order for the 1969 fire to make it into the press, um, I think it was the New York Times that used a picture from the 1952 incident, so then they were just like, oh my gosh, the river's set on fire and there was this really big event, and then everybody else was like, oh my gosh, but really the 1969 fire was pretty small, but using that bigger fire really got it into the public eye. So, next, so that's water pollution and then, of course, with industrialization and people driving cars, air pollution was a big problem as well. Um, people were starting to drive more and more, especially in cities, and people were moving away from cities with the whole, um, you know, people migrating to the suburbs. So. And gas mileage was not what it is today, and people were like, oh, hey, I have this really cool car and the gas mileage sucks, like, I'm pretty awesome. So, there weren't standards set at the time for making sure emissions from manufacturing facilities and power plants were clean, and uh, there really weren't regulations for car emissions as well. So, with everyone driving and the industrialization, uh, smog was pretty commonplace in a lot of major cities. In the US, we had uh, Los Angeles and New York City had some pretty major smog events, Um, but if you look outside of the major city or outside of the United States, uh, cities like London had some historic smog events as well. With New York City, they had a couple of events in 1953 and 1966, with both incidents being linked to the deaths of up to 200 people. There, also, there was also a major oil spill in Santa Barbara, California, and this one caught the eye of some of the environmentalists that really got Earth Day moving as well. So, if you thought oil spills were a more modern problem, they are not. As long as we've been uh, extracting oil, spills have been happening. So, what happened in uh, 1969 in Santa Barbara, a platform exploded, and this caused 100,000 barrels of oil in the ocean to be dumped. And this, of course, killed wildlife and covered beaches on more than 35 miles on the Southern California coast. And then we have Silent Spring being published. If you aren't familiar with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and I do still need to read it myself, it talks about both the environmental damage and public health concerns of heavy, unchecked, and unregulated pesticide use, particularly the pesticide DDT. So, DDT was created towards the end of World War II, and I think the main intent behind it was as a malaria control, so helping to control mosquitoes, but it was also used to try to control for pest insects like lice, fleas, the Colorado potato beetle, and the gypsy moth, which is now known as the spongy moth. Of course, controlling for mosquitoes and malaria, noble cause but um, they did go a wee bit overboard, to say the least. Uh, Fire ants were a target of DDT as well, and in the 1950s, the federal government just kind of decided that fire ants were this huge major problem and decided to just do some widespread aerial spraying of DDT to help control it, like just out of airplanes, cars driving by, sprayed around, whatever, in both federally owned lands and private lands. Literally, no one wanted this, with state agencies, ecologists, and entomologists, who are the people who study bugs, saying, hey, at minimum, can we at least make sure a widespread uh, spraying program is safe? And the Secretary of Agriculture went, hello, well, no, and went forward with the program spraying 1 million acres in the first year. And as a result, not only did fire ants, of course, I'm sure, start to die, but other insects, birds, livestock, and other assorted wildlife started dying in the sprayed areas. Uh, What was also great though is that some of the target insect populations also started to develop a resistance to the pesticide use since it was just being... uh, it was being used so heavily, and that's kind of the same principle as bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. You take the antibiotic, there is a chance that like if you don't, you don't use it appropriately, a couple bacteria that just so happen to be maybe mildly resistant to it survive because you only took like it two days out of your five-day prescription, whatever, and then those bacteria multiply and the resistance is now just in the population. And yeah, same thing with insects happens, so that's pretty great. Now, why is DDT bad? Uh, DDT is a super stable pesticide, and it does not break down quickly in the environment at all, and there are some areas that even 20 years or so after DDT was sprayed, that there's still evidence of the pesticide in the environment when you test the soils and things like that. It also bioaccumulates, so what happens with that is that a bird or some other insect-eating animal would eat a treated bug, And then it would accumulate in their stored fat, so it doesn't really quite get processed and removed quickly like another uh, toxin might. And then some other predator would eat that poisoned animal, increasing the amount of pesticides in that predator's system. And of course, just if you're a bird and you're being sprayed with some aerial spraying program of DDT, like that's also not going to do great things for you either. But This bioaccumulation was a problem for a lot of wildlife, and it led to a pretty serious decline in songbirds and birds of prey, such as bald eagles, as well. Bald eagles were hunted in some spots as well, but DDT is attributed to their very heavy and severe decline. In the bald eagles and other hawks and birds of prey, uh, DDT caused them to have thinner eggshells So they had lower reproductive success, and when you can't really have more baby eagles, populations decline very quickly. I thought I saw somewhere that at one point the US was only down to 500 bald eagles. Uh, One other source confirmed less than a thousand in 1950s, but I couldn't find again where I found that, but you know, populations tanked from hundreds of thousands to less than a thousand, so it was pretty bad. And of course, the bald eagles are natural is our national, like, animal, so <laughs> what a thing to nearly make your national symbol go extinct. So, Rachel Carson saw that decline in songbirds, and um, her research in environmental conservation and pesticide use went into her book, Silent Spring, which was named to suggest a future without bird song, so literally a silent spring. She spoke out against the widespread use of pesticides, especially without testing for their safety first, and accused the chemical industry of spreading misinformation about the downsides of pesticides. So, while she did have an environmental focus, she also talked about the human health effects of pesticide use, especially DDT, in particular uh, DDT's ability to cause cancer because at that time, uh, its cancer causing effects or potential cancer causing effects were a big concern, and it has since been classified by at least one or two agencies as a carcinogen. But at least in people, that's still fairly debated, but it's not, it's still not good. Um, when people, particularly uh, pesticide companies like Monsanto, spoke out against her. They often said that she spoke for a total ban of all pesticides and man, what would the world look like if we didn't use pesticides? The horrors. And um, that she was saying that pesticides could never be used. Uh, And that's not really true. She really just advocated for the responsible use of pesticides. Like, hey, maybe they should be managed and maybe we should properly research their safety before widespread use. But like, That's just, you know, what a concept. So all of that is a lot. There were some conservation programs starting in the 1900s to get some of the environmental conservation efforts started, with a couple introductory laws to have at least a little bit of protections for endangered species, but really not a lot, and President Theodore Roosevelt included some conservation measures in his New Deal for the 1930s and um, including starting some programs to prevent soil erosion. He established funds for uh, state fish and wildlife programs to get started, so if you work for a state fish and wildlife program, you can thank uh, Roosevelt for that. And he created the Tennessee Valley Authority that built dams to generate energy, and I believe it was also him that got the national park system uh, kind of going. He had protected a couple areas, as national wildlife reservations, and then national park system went up from there. Um, But Silent Spring and the press coverage from the 1969 Cuyahoga River Fire created more public awareness around the state of the environment and people in general just started to be more aware of environmental issues and really wanted something to be done about it. So early in 1970 there was some uh, early legislation passed Due to the growing envi- uh, public pressure, the National Environmental Policy Act was passed. And this required, um, of a few things, it required federal agencies to actually assess the environmental effects of any proposed projects before acting on them and before uh, making decisions as well. The energy behind getting that act passed also went into kickstarting Earth Day. Senator Gaylord Nelson was an environmentalist, and he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1962. One of the things he really wanted to do with his time in office was to convince the government that the planet and the general health of the environment was a deep concern and it needed to be protected. At the time, there were a lot of student protests on college campuses and elsewhere against the Vietnam War, and Nelson took these as inspiration. He wanted to create similar sort of teach-in demonstration events to increase awareness of the health of the environment and help to pressure the government to really just do something about it. He announced the idea in 1969 and took off from there, planning uh, Kickstarted to create events around the entire country. He contacted this guy, Dennis Hayes, And he was a 25-year-old activist. Um, At one point, he went to Harvard. But he was a young activist and he was um, recruited to help organize uh, campus events around the country. So, uh, Hayes worked both with student volunteers as well as Nelson's office staff to help coordinate events. Now, since they wanted the power of the students to maximize student participation... They wanted to pick a day between spring break and final exams and settled on April 22nd. And then as planning continued, they decided to call this day Earth Day. With increasing public awareness around the environmental disasters of the 60s, millions of people ended up gathering on Earth Day. 20 million people marched and gathered in parks and auditoriums and thousands of colleges and universities around the country organized protests against the degradation of the environment, and to increase public pressure on the government to create more conservation efforts to clean up the environment. Rallies were held in most major American cities, including New York City, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Chicago, and Los Angeles. In New York City, the mayor even closed off parts of Fifth Avenue to allow for people to march and gather, and he spoke at a rally in Union Square And then in Washington DC, at least 10,000 people gathered at the Washington Monument to join in the demonstration and hear people speak for the push for public protections. And there were several different singers that gave performances in support of the effort as well. And then in what feels like a bit of an unexpected twist, I like to think that they would still do this like now, but honestly I have no idea but Congress decided to even go into recess on Earth Day so that the representatives could take the time to attend the protest and speak to their constituents that gathered and actually hear their concerns. So the first Earth Day was considered a huge success both in turnout and on its effects on national policy. Later reflecting on the first Earth Day, Nelson said that it was a success because so many people arrived spontaneously to and created a full grassroots effort, and in his words, that was the remarkable thing about Earth Day, it organized itself. Because, of course, no one has the resources or time, especially before the internet, to get 20 million people around the country to gather. And as a show of its success, in 1971, a poll observed a clear shift in public opinion around the environment, with 25% of people in the United States saying that protecting the environment was an important goal. Now, 25% may not sound like a whole lot, but the percentage before that must have been single digits at best, because that 25% was a 2,500% increase from 1969. Also, as a result of uh, the first Earth Day, a dozen major environmental laws were passed through the 70s that helped establish regulations to protect the environment and get things cleaned up. A-, a few of these were improvements on previously passed laws, but many were just completely brand new things and were passed in the first few years of the 70s. So laws that were passed at this time include things like the Clean Water Act, the Water Quality Improvement Act, Toxic Substances Control Act. Occupational Safety and Health Act, so hooray for OSHA, uh, Federal Environmental Pesticide Control Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and then importantly for the bald eagles and several of the animals I've talked about in other podcast episodes, the Endangered Species Act. The Marine Mammal Protection Act was also passed in 1972, but that was uh, more created from pressure from a different series of protests, but I'm sure probably included in some of the Earth Day protests. But this was to save whales and the seals, not necessarily considered to be a direct result of Earth Day, but still one of the major environmental laws passed in the 70s. In 1972, and then again in 1978, there were agreements made between the U.S. and Canada called the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, where both countries agreed to put forth effort in cleaning up the lakes and improve their water quality. And now you can actually eat fish from the Great Lakes once or twice a year. It still doesn't sound like a super suggested things, but you could. And that's great. Uh, some other fun effects of Earth Day is that universities and colleges started having more programs for environmental education. So if you have a degree in environmental sciences, you can probably thank Earth Day for helping to make that a thing. And also, if you have a job at a state-level Department of Environmental Protection or Department of Environmental uh, Conservation or some variation of those words, you can thank Earth Day for that too. After Earth Day, states started to create these agencies to help protect the environment and the natural resources in that state. So not only did state agencies start to form, but the 1970s also saw the creation of the whole national level EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA did start to be organized in 1969, so movements were being made there, but it wasn't until the end of 1970 that they had employees and were ready to open for work, and a lot of sources did kind of attribute Earth Day as the push that got the EPA like really started and going. So, the EPA was created to enforce environmental laws like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, make sure chemicals like pesticides and herbicides are appropriately tested and reviewed for safety, and just generally promote environmental stewardship as an integral component to federal policies and projects. And now today, if you want to celebrate Earth Day with the EPA, they do have some Earth Day resources like lesson plans and different resources for teachers and educators, but if you want to celebrate, if you really want to celebrate Earth Day with the EPA, they say you can download their Earth Day coloring page, so you can get a coloring page from the EPA on their website. And for that, you just have to search uh, EPA Earth Day, and that that should get you there. So, since the first Earth Day, it has continued to grow. In 1990, Dennis Hayes was at it again, and he was approached to help organize another big Earth Day event, but this time going global. Earth Day 1990 saw 200 million people in 141 countries participating in the event, which helped to bring environmental concerns to the attention of global politics. What this then inspired was a United Nations Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro, and um, also, as a award for his contribution in founding Earth Day, Senator Nelson was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his role in founding Earth Day. Earth Day 2000 saw even more participation in 184 countries and, again, hundreds of millions of people. But what we also had here was the participation of 5,000 different environmental groups, participating to advocate for the environment. and here we're starting to see the advocation for the use of clean energy. And then again, in 2010, the Earth Day Network, Earthday.org, um, started to be organized as sort of a central organizing agency for international Earth Day events. So in 2010, they partnered with over um, they partnered with different events, protests, rallies, etc with 75,000 different groups in 192 countries, and now Earth Day protests have different but also not super new problems from the OG Earth Day to target and talk about, including things like climate change deniers, oil lobbyists, politicians paid by said lobbyists, and an increasingly disinterested public, And, and one thing that's kind of a bummer too is that apparently the Over time, the environmental community hasn't quite been as united in its efforts as it was once before. So many of these challenges are still here over a decade later. Even as we're starting to see some of the effects of climate change, um, we do still have oil drilling projects getting approved in Alaska without the proper environmental assessments. Project Willow, we're looking at you, um, which actually has been successfully stalled. And people are still pretty sure that climate change isn't a thing um, and is still years down the line and we're definitely not going to see it in our lifetime. Um, So anyways, the after effects of the first Earth Day was definitely successful in its goal of cleaning up and protecting the environment. Not only were the agencies and legislations put in place to enforce the rules and create the rules to protect wildlife and the environment, but things actually happened. Um, Because of... uh, local efforts and local projects being put in place as well as things like the Clean Water Act and all of those water legislations. Waterways were actually cleaned up and now rivers like the Cuyahoga no longer regularly set on fire and as far as I could find that 1969 fire was the last one and I actually saw that in um, 19 or in 2019 it was given the River of the Year Award by the American River's Conservation Association for its 50 years of environmental resurgence, and uh, some different species that are sensitive to poor water quality have also returned to the river. Smog can still be an occasional problem in major industrial cities, but we don't have smog events near like the ones in the 1900s. DDT was also successfully banned in 1972, with some regulations starting to happen in the 60s, but it wasn't fully banned by until the 70s. And now pesticides and herbicides are generally more thoroughly tested before uh, being put in common use. There are still some pesticides and herbicides that uh, we don't find out are dangerous before they've been in heavy use for years, but we don't necessarily have quite the same uh, widespread heavy use that DDT had, and there are entire lists that Uh, the EPA has for different pesticides and herbicides that are banned because they're not safe. And with the banning of DDT and the Endangered Species Act, birds like the Bald Eagle were able to recover, and the Bald Eagle is one of the Endangered Species Act's big success stories. By 1978, the Bald Eagle was listed as an endangered species, and this would have protected it from intentional hunting and protected its habitats as well. In some areas where breeding populations had died out and populations weren't reestablishing organically, there were some areas, like a couple national parks, that had uh, created reintroduction programs to help bring back and reestablish those populations. And the protections given from the Endangered Species Act and these reintroduction projects were so successful in protecting the bald eagle that in 2007, the bald eagle was removed from the endangered species list. And in some areas where you once didn't see bald eagles anymore, they can now be seen semi-regularly. Another success has kind of sort of been manatees down in Florida and the southeast U.S. Their population is a little bit more fragile and is very heavily dependent on the uh, state of the seagrass. And um, they are currently listed as vulnerable, but they're no longer considered endangered due to conservation efforts, both from the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Of course, the first Earth Day had some great side effects, but there are still plenty of problems today. Many, many insects are on the decline today, and the Xerces Society has recently petitioned to have at least three different firefly species listed, listed as endangered, some bumblebees as well and many native native bees are on the decline and this is still from assorted pesticide use, in some cases herbicide use, as well as decreasing habitat. Um, we're also starting to see some of the effects in climate change in some areas with uh, coastal areas becoming regularly flooded occasionally or becoming occasionally flooded uh, with things like extremely high tides when that wasn't a thing that happened before. Um, Some areas are having milder winters as well as more extreme heat waves, and we also have an increasing severity of wildfires as well as droughts in California. And then the North Atlantic right whale is technically doing better than it was several decades ago, but there are really still only a few hundred of them, so there are some debates if it's even still worth it trying to save them, which is kind of a sad thought, but it is what it is. And then there, of course, there's still climate change deniers, oil companies really just digging in their heels about more oil drilling projects, and generally inconsistent funding towards clean energy funding. But there are still things you can do about it, and we have more good news stories. And in general, a lot of these can feel like really big problems, and Nobody expects any one person to, like, save the world, but there, there are plenty of small things you can do about it. And for some good news stories, recently, due to some fancy grassroots organizations through social media, um, we were successfully able to put a pause on Project Willow so that better assessments, um, environmental and social assessments, could actually happen before we start blasting Alaska. And if that makes you go, like, oh, man, the gas prices. The oil wouldn't have reached the market for another decade at least anyway, and hopefully by that time we'll be less reliant on fossil fuels anyway. And then there are groups like the conservate, like Conservation Optimism, whose primary goal is to spread good news conservation stories because, man, while a lot of things are very disappointing, like the uh, train derailment in East Palestine that caused a lot of water and air pollution in Ohio... It's definitely important to be aware of these issues, but if you only focus on the bad things, it's really easy to just get discouraged and really bummed out about everything. So having that dose of optimism helps, and generally just seeing like, yeah, people are doing a lot of really great things for the environment, and it's not all gonna, like, you know, it's not all gonna get better today, but it's good to have that bit of silver lining. It's not all bad, and good things are happening. Now, for some things that you can do. Like I said, no one expects any one person to solve all the world's problems or go on and create an international holiday like Earth Day 2.0. It's just, like, if you can just do some little things here and there, like one person doing a few little things doesn't, like, do a whole lot. But we have a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of little things, and that's really what makes the difference in some of these sort of societal shifts that we need. But one of the biggest things that you can do is to vote and hold your elected officials accountable, making sure they keep their promises to help the environment, and vote for people that actually care about the environment and have a track record for, um, you know, some environmental conservation sorts of things, and they pretty much people that don't have a clear record for putting business over conservation. You can also write to your representatives to let them know about the issues you care about and that helps to put pressure on them to act and in some cases might just make them aware because at the end of the day our representatives are politicians and it's easy to expect them to like you know know everything about the issues but it's unreasonable to expect one person to know all sides of an issue so if you write to them call them whatever it's A good way to, you know, let them know what you think and that they should do things about it. I've also mentioned this one before in previous episodes, but a really great thing that you can do too is plant some native plants and wildflowers. Devoting a portion of your yard for some flowers and native plants helps to give habitat for insects like fireflies, bumblebees, and butterflies, while also providing the benefit of less lawn for you to mow. Consider also not treating your lawns with herbicides for weed control or pesticides as well um, because even herbicides like glyphosate that can be found in Roundup can be directly harmful for wildlife and uh, when you're using it against flowering plants it takes away important food sources for butterflies in some areas that can, uh, you know, if it's being treated along roadsides it can uh, kill milkweed. If you are not sure what plants are native to your area you can check out organizations like the Xerces Society, uh, the National Wildlife Federation, and the Native Plant Trust for some resources and information on native plants in your area. And these organizations are all U.S. focused, so if you are outside of the United States, they may not be super helpful for you, but a quick Google search for native plants in your area should give you some resources to check out. And what a way to celebrate Earth Day other than Like, getting a wildflower garden started and being outside and gardening and digging in the dirt and all that good stuff. What a date. What a way to celebrate Earth Day. And, you know, more outdoorsy-based activities are great, too. And like I said earlier, a lot of people celebrate Earth Day by getting outside, going on a hike and um, planting trees. And those are all, like, that's all super great. Like, definitely, if that's your thing, definitely go do that. You can support your local Audubon centers, state parks, national parks, if you're around them, generally enjoying your public lands. This helps to ensure that they stay protected and can help contribute some funds in the cases of national parks towards their management. If you are lucky enough to live near a few national parks, it can also be really great to visit ones that are less busy. Then you don't have all the people to hike around and it can generally, it can be a good time. For other Earth Day themed things, one of the themes of this year's Earth Day is minimizing plastic use. So, if that's a thing that you are really looking to get into in the spirit of Earth Day, take stock of what single-use plastics you use and which ones could be replaceable. Again, no one expects anyone to do a full life switch to zero plastics, reusable everything, but um, plastic-free reusable replacements are starting to get to be more and more accessible and more common so if there are any small switches that you can make definitely think about doing it. There are some companies like Blueland and Grove Collaborative that sell plastic-free cleaning materials, shampoo bars, all sorts of things if you can name it. You can probably find a reusable option and again no one expects you to do a full shift. If there's anything you can swap to a plastic-free option that's really helpful. Okay, I think this is something I could probably keep babbling on about, but we are getting to 45 minutes, so we're gonna wrap things up. So with Earth Day this coming Saturday, maybe start to think about what you want to do to celebrate. Maybe take a nice hike somewhere, plant some wildflowers, however you spend your Earth Day, big or small, take a moment to think about how far we've come in the environmental movement and where we still need to go. Senator Nelson wrote an essay in 1980 thinking about Earth Day and the resulting movement, so I want to leave you today with this quote from him. So long as the human species inhabits the Earth, proper management of its resources will be the most fundamental issue we face. Our very survival will depend upon whether or not we are able to preserve, protect, and defend our environment. We disregard the needs of our ecosystem at our mortal peril. Happy Earth Day! Thank you for listening and learning about Earth Day. I know today was longer and also maybe a bit heavier than a normal podcast episode, For things, so thanks for sticking through it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to share the history of Earth Day with all of your friends and family, be sure to share it with your friends. They can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe so you can be notified of future episodes, and if you feel so moved, leave a review, particularly a five-star review if you feel so inclined. Those are all great ways to support this podcast and help new people find us. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky on Facebook, and Quirky, Creepy, Freaky Pod on Instagram to get all of the pictures and updates on the podcast. Thanks to my sister, Kaylee Streit, for creating the theme music for the podcast, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.